Tess, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Uh, it's a real honour. Look, look forward to talking to you. So, so how did you even get into the law? What was the thing that, that, that pushed you in this direction? Um, I never originally wanted to be a lawyer when I was determining what to do at university. Um, I was always interested in politics, history, economics, things like that. Um, but I kind of recognised at about the age of 18 that maybe perhaps just doing a politics degree wasn't going to be enough in today's in what way? day and age. Um, that if you really want to sort of succeed and achieve, you really needed to demonstrate that you'd done a bit more than a, a basic Bachelor of Arts. This is in New Zealand at least. It might, might be different, di different here in Britain, but it felt like uh, I had the capability um, to just sort of add a little bit more to that. And so I decided to do a double degree. Wow. And I was looking at the double degrees that uh, you could do at the university I wanted to go to, which is Otago University. And um, looking at a law degree just looked like an interesting sort of addition to uh, a politics degree. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know any lawyers, didn't have any lawyers in the family, uh, but I did see that with law you could move into things like international law. And I had been really interested in perhaps moving into the world of di diplomacy, uh, so working for foreign affairs or working for a, uh, an NGO uh, or a, a sort of worldwide UN type organisation. So I thought that it would be a good uh, addition to that. Um, so I went to university and uh, then discovered that I actually quite enjoyed the legal aspect of the degree I was doing which, and that I was quite good bit? at it. Right, okay. <laughs> um, so Why were you good at it? What bit? Um, it's quite... I like debating ideas and I like problem solving. And I think that a law degree uh, and the sort of the legal space really allows you to get into that side of things. I also saw the sorts of papers that once I had done my compulsory papers, um, the sorts of papers I could get into, which were things like uh, international law, international human rights law, international environmental law, civil liberties, uh, the, the sorts of papers that are sort of not, not hard law, but some of the softer things uh, that really work well if you want to work on the world stage. And um, I thought it looked really interesting. And so I, I got into it through that. Uh, however, when I was there, I, um, I did very well in my first year. and then had the opportunity to apply for a scholarship uh, through Russell McVeigh. While you're doing a double degree? Yeah, so they target, um, they target both final year um, high school students and second year university students. Um, were you like a genius at school? <laughs> no. not, not, not being glib. I mean, I was certainly you, one of the brighter, yeah. You were one of the yeah, brightest, yeah. I was yeah. one of the brighter ones. <laughs> From a young age, were you? From a young age, yeah. I was wow. always um, always wanting to, to achieve uh, well. So, is and it, is had it sort of the application from a young age, or is it you, you were just much brighter than the other kids? I mean, I suppose what I'm trying to drive at is people listening to this might think, well, she's a genius, so she's <laughs> not within my remit. No. But are, are you... You established it quite bright, um, but was there a level of application there that marked you out from other kids at a young age? Because you were saying at 18, I had thoughts about, well, like, there's a big conversation to have with yourself at 18. Mm, I think, um, so I wouldn't, you know, I've got lots of bright friends and I know lots of bright people and I know other people who, uh, you know, work, have worked incredibly hard and, you know, really applied themselves and have done just as well or better than me. 
Uh, so it, it's not purely down to raw intelligence because I think you can be have raw intelligence but uh, take advantage of it or not take advantage of it, I should say, and um, be a bit lazy <laughs> with, with that. Um, but I guess from a young age, I was always driven, uh, liked, liked all the subjects, including the creative ones, liked all the sports, even if I wasn't great at them, liked doing them. Where's um, this coming from though? Is this like your parents? Or are they very driven? Or? Uh, I think so. We were certainly a family where education was an important aspect of our childhood. It was taken um, seriously. Taken seriously, but not in a way where we were, you know, we weren't given tutors and we weren't forced to sit down and do our homework. It was very much just a, you know, we had the newspaper out every morning and in the weekends we'd all sit around reading the newspaper, not talking to each other. Um, or we would, uh, you, you know, would have, we, would, yeah. we would do that. Um, reading a section until my father had finished his section and then he'd steal whatever section you were reading. Um, <laughs> or, you know, and books were a big part. We're very, education's a big part of our family, even if, you know, we're not, we're not a family, like I say, of, of, of lawyers or bankers or doctors, but rather kind of... Um, journalists and teachers and engineers and, and, and still in that sort of, you know, education was something to be proud of. Um, and then I guess there's, there is just that little bit of internal drive that's come with that. I, I do consider myself privileged in the fact that I grew up in an environment where um, really applying yourself and wanting to do well was, uh, and having the capacity to because I had a house full of books or, um, the opportunity to do uh, after-school activities like after-school sports. Um, Your parents sound like they did so. a fantastic job setting things up, like they had the right idea. Yeah. Because a lot of parents can kind of, you know. Yeah, they, I, like, I yeah. like to think they really supported us, but they allowed us, there was no sort of expectation that we became the best at what we did. So, you know, if I did one sport for a couple of years, they wanted to switch to another one, that was fine. There was no kind of, well, you're good at this one, so. You have to stick at it and you know where I did ballet at the age of five through to ten because my friends did but I never bothered doing any of the ballet exams because I didn't really care about ballet I just wanted to be with my friends um, but there was still that sort of level of support that if we wanted to try something we were you know and, and, and they could give us that opportunity that we that we that we were able to um, I was actually it's a bit embarrassing but in, in my final year of primary school, which in New Zealand is when you're about 12 or 13, sort of year eight, we wrote, you know, uh, wrote these little booklets, these little blurbs, which is, you know, where do we see ourselves in 10 years, um, in 10 years time when we're about 22, 23 years old, and it got published for that year group. And mine said, um, I will have just finished university and will be working for a couple of years before I take time off to travel. And that's exactly what I did. Yeah. <laughs> so just <laughs> but, but there we go. And then and then with it with the studying, when you did the two degrees and what have you, how were you cutting up your time? How were you even staying on top of all the work? Um there was certainly a lot of socializing in there. It's university, you're away from home for the first time. Uh, but I was also surrounded by a group of friends who, as much as they wanted to, to party and to, you know, explore living away from home for the first time, also really wanted to achieve. Uh, so it was a really nice balance with, you know, with a group of friends who, who have the same values and have the same goals, uh, which meant that, you know, 
when it was time to study or write papers, that was respected. But at the same time, we made sure we, we uh, enjoyed ourselves and got a bit more of a rounded view on, on life rather than just a sort of pure, you know, studying is everything. But were there ever any moments where you thought, maybe I can't do this? Or, or do you always think, yeah, it's fine. Has it been a breeze, basically? I mean, I've worked hard. <laughs> no, but I don't mean that. I mean, like, moments of self-doubt. Not really. Really? No. Wow, what no. a lovely thing to say. <laughs> um, I mean, I've had times where I have wondered whether I've taken the right path or I've had times where I've made big decisions to change what I'm doing or what I thought I wanted to be. Um, so I've had times of reflection where I... I haven't, how do I put this? Um, I'm not a slave to the person that I f decided I was going to be two years ago or five years ago or 10 what years ago. Uh, I think when I was younger, I thought, you know, I said, I am going to do X. And therefore, if in two years time, I suddenly felt like that wasn't the right option, it was almost like I had an obligation to my past self and all of the people that I've told, all of the people I'd said I was going to be something that what would they think if I changed my mind or... You weren't penned in by that? I was for a little bit, I think, when I was younger. And then it was actually through a, an amazing conversation I had with somebody I met when I was doing my master's degree in Toronto, uh, where I was changing a decision about my future or contemplating changing a decision about my future. And it, he was the one, it was through a conversation with him, um, he probably doesn't realise how impactful it was, that I realised I was being a bit of a slave to my past self and actually I should just make decisions on what I want to do now and what the right thing is for me now and everyone around me will just be happy for me and support me. They don't really care what I said two years ago. They were just supporting me then because they want me to be happy and successful. Yeah. Um, what was the decision? Yeah. Uh, so after university, um, I spent a couple of years working uh, for Russell Mac Bay, the law firm that I that I got a scholarship with, which is a big corporate law firm. It's an equivalent of a kind of um, Allen and Overy or Linklater's or something in, in the UK, but on a smaller scale because it's New Zealand. And I always knew that I, even working there, it was fantastic training, um, fantastic experience, but I knew I didn't want to be a um, an external lawyer, uh, uh, you know, working for a firm. Uh, and I decided to that I wanted to go and get a master's degree and I was focusing on law and development uh, it's something I'd, I'd, I'd focused my honours paper when I did honours at, at my undergrad on sort of law and development and the, the impact that law has on uh, developing countries and how it can be used to sort of improve improve the world really um, because I wanted to go and do my master's and then work uh, for a, an NGO or the likes of the World Bank or the UN. I, I was slightly idealistic and kind of wanting to save the world, as a lot of young people are, I think. Uh, so I went to Toronto um, and I, the university was fantastic and the professors were fantastic and the actual study was great. Um, but I actually was quite lonely there and I had gone there only six months after my father had died. And so it was quite a, it was really difficult being away from my family. 
uh, and being away from my friends, I hadn't, I hadn't realised how difficult it was going to be so soon after my father had died, because uh, it was something that I had been progressing while he was still alive and he was really proud of me for going and pursuing that and wanted me to continue to pursue that at all costs, no matter what was happening to him. Um, and my thought was, oh, well, I'm leaving the country now and this is it, now I'm, I'm off. This is, this is me now dominating the world. And I got there and realised actually, maybe I want to be back home. <laughs> um, and maybe I'm not ready to go dominate the world. Um, but it was quite a tough thing because I'd set myself up as this person who was going to go and save the world and dominate the world and I uh, then realised that actually I just needed to be back home. Um, so it was, but then I was actually fortunate enough that um, my old boss, so not at the law firm, my last three months at the law firm I was put on secondment to a company called Meridian Energy. Meridian is a, uh, New, De New Zealand's largest electricity company and it's fully 100% renewable. So it's all hydro and wind. And I got the opportunity to work in the in-house legal team for a fantastic uh, general counsel called Jason. And Jason had contacted me while I was in Toronto, offering me a job back home and trying to pull me back. I kind of said to him, well, you know, I told you I'm going off, this is it. And if I do come back, it's to work for foreign affairs. Uh, and he said, well, that's fine, you go, and, you go and think about it and pursue it and I'll go see if I can find anyone else in the meantime. Then he left it a couple of months. Uh, and then he came back and said, look, we didn't find anybody and we'd really like you back and then offered me a salary that I wasn't expecting and also said, okay, you don't know what you want to do, how about just a one-year contract? And actually that worked really well with my realising I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to be anymore or who I wanted to be anymore, that I had gone through quite a fundamental life experience, um, that actually, why don't I grasp that opportunity? And so I went back to New Zealand and worked for Jason. It actually turned out he had never gone to the market. <laughs> he just left me stewing for a month and then came back to me and offered, to, offered it to me again. Um, but that set me on another path where I uh, then went and became an in-house lawyer and I got to see what it could be uh, working for a boss who was just fantastic. He became a bit of a mentor for me. How, how, what does that mean? Fantastic. What, what are the requirements of a fantastic boss um, in this industry? In this industry, I think he, he had, there's a number of things. From a pure kind of work sense, what does it mean? He was the general counsel. He sat, he had exposure to the whole business and he was regarded with, he had a lot of respect and he was regarded as very senior to the business. So as in the, the CEO didn't just look to the CFO for being his kind of um, uh, number two or chief you know, person that provides guidance, which often in businesses people immediately think of the CFO as being that person that provides the guidance to the CEO because money matters. Uh, but he actually really looked, looked to Jason as well um, and Jason had a very strategic and commercial view in the way that he operated. In terms of the team, he really he demonstrated a lot of empathy. He really cared about his team and he really cared about the well-being of his team. And that well-being was both in terms of having a proper work-life balance, uh, but also ensuring that we all got decent work. Um, 
And then on the third thing is that he also ensured that the, the work environment itself was really fun. So we were able to have a laugh, have good times, uh, but at the same time, uh, really respect, you know, whether people had to go and watch their daughter in a ballet recital or, um, you know, go home to care for a sick parent or, you know, for me, I was sort of young and single at the time and that wasn't just a reason that means that you sit at your desk and slave away. If you want to go and, you know, you need to go and see your friend because you've promised to go to a play, then you go and do that. Um, and, you know, I remember my very first meeting where he said, oh, look, guys, you know, some of you are working past six or seven o'clock and that's just, that's just not what we should be doing. If we've got a problem with capacity and resourcing, then let's do something about it. I want to listen, you know. <laughs> um, so no, he was just, yeah, he was, he was quite fundamental, I think, in my understanding of what it could be to, to work in-house and to be, um, to be a leader and a manager in that way. Uh, and I also, at that time, I got really good work and he really liked me. We got on very well. And he identified that I was a potential leader and a potential leader at Meridian. And so um, he was sort of, you know, the one-on-ones that we would have, we would talk about what makes a good leader and the fact that he, he could see qualities in me and that he wanted to sort of develop and progress. Um, and then eventually I ended up getting a bit of um, individual coaching with the, uh, we had a couple of um, a husband and wife team who used to work with the whole team. Uh, and I also managed, I also got some one-on-one -on -one coaching with them um, because he really wanted sort of me to grow and develop into, into a leader who could um, replace him one day. Um, he's still trying. <laughs> but I ended up over here and said, come back to me every once in a while and we'll, we'll reassess, you know, when, you, when you're actually ready to leave your post. Um, but no, he was, he was pretty fundamental in, in the sort of shift towards um, realising that, that this was a good career and um, that I didn't need to, that I could actually have probably more of an impact on society working in an in-house role for a company with a purpose that I believed in than I could being in a giant bureaucracy of something like the UN or, or the World Bank. Um, Do you know, I was going to ask you uh, about what your end game might be in, in this business, but you've talked about having an impact on society and the world mm -hmm. from a very young age. Is that the thing that drives you, the impact you'll have, and, and why? Is it to leave a legacy, or is it to, when going gets tough, you can say, well, I've done X, and I can be proud of myself. What is the need to have an impact on? I completely understand it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is it? That's a really good question because I don't think I've um, really dug deep as to to work out why that that matters so much to me. I, you know, I believe in this world. I believe that human beings generally have a capacity to do good. Um, and that most people do do want that. Um, unfortunately, it's the loudest voices in society uh, that seem to win out. Uh, whether it's the sort of um, you know the uh, the loud sort of talk show voices or um, the 
you know, how we get ourselves into some pretty nasty situations with wars and, and the treatment of, treatment of people in society. Um, and I just feel like I have the capacity to do good and have an impact. I have the uh, privilege to be able to, and I wouldn't want, um, I wouldn't just wouldn't want to just be selfish and not not use that to try to make make things better for people, um, if I can, in what small way that I can. I don't profess to uh, have the capacity to you know fundamentally change the world, but actually I think if you look at your sort of smaller society, whether that starts with just the immediate people around you, your friends and family. And slowly expands to the uh, community that you live in or that you work in, and then that expands to your city and then to your country and eventually the globe. Uh, that everyone does have that capacity just to make you know small positive changes for good. Oh, are there are there any changes you've made that you're particularly proud of, or that you think I'm glad I did that? Like, and you know, that's a good landmark in my career. Yeah, I think so. Um, so there's. A, there's a few of a few of them. Um, so, at in terms of really concrete ones where I can say that you know that was me or, yeah. or that there's had, that's had a legacy. Um, at Meridian, we had wind farms, or Meridian has wind farms all around the country, and one of them uh, is on uh, the south coast of Wellington, which is very it's very isolated. However, it captures because of the way that the tides work. Uh, the, the coast and the beaches around there capture a lot of litter and a lot of plastic. And uh, while at university, actually at high school, um, I, had, I was friends with a guy who, um, and actually I went to law school with him as well, he'd started a charity. He was a surfer and a diver, and so he was spending a lot of time in the sea. And he started a charity called Sustainable Coastlines. And the purpose of that charity was really about education in terms of um, plastic and the effects of plastic pollution. And he did a lot of work with schools and with school children. Um, however, he obviously needed sort of the money and the funding, and so he would often, um, you know, work with corporate partners. And he also, uh, their organisation would also organise big beach cleanups. And this is well before people were kind of, you know, I'm talking well over ten years ago now that, that we were, that we, uh, you know, he started this charity. And. Um, he contacted me one day because he'd been diving on the south coast around there and knew that I worked at, at Meridian and said, you know, can we, is there something we can do here? Is there a partnership we can make? And we started a partnership uh, which began with a couple of beach cleanups a year where um, one would be just for staff and, you know, the employees would sign up and get the day off and we would go on um, four wheelers with, uh, you know, four wheel drives to remote beaches and do a cleanup. And then we also opened it up to the public. And it actually meant that the public got to observe the wind farm and go to beaches that they wouldn't usually get to. We worked with the local um, four-wheel drive club. So it was working with sort of local communities and worked with the local council and, um, and the farm owners who our wind farms were on, on farmers. And community members got to uh, see a part of, the, of New Zealand they wouldn't otherwise have, but also help clean up the beach. And through that, um, it developed a more long-lasting relationship, both with those cleanups, but also through some sort of, I, I think they have in the past done some corporate sponsorship, but they also extended it to um, uh, riparian, cleanups of riparian waterways and planting of trees near rivers, because some of our um, wind farms are near rivers, not near the coast. Uh, and that is now a, you know, a, 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 
something that Meridian has, has continued to support through to today. So pretty proud of that one. It's something that I'm currently um, doing is I uh, volunteer for a charity called the Literacy Pirates. It's a local charity that's based in Hackney uh, and, most, and more recently has extended to Tottenham. And they're an after-school program uh, working, in, working with children who kind of come from either more disadvantaged backgrounds or have fewer opportunities and are falling behind in school for one reason or another, um, particularly in their literacy. And they are there to help improve the literacy, confidence and perseverance of the young people or the young pirates, as we call them, um, who come along to this after-school program. And I volunteer with them about once a month. They have volunteers from you know, students right through to retired people that span all different types of people in society who come from all different countries. That's part of their thing. They want the young pirates to meet people from all different walks of life. And we work on with them one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. Um, the first half of the session is reading with them and working on comprehension. And then the second half is working on whatever project they're working on at the time uh, with the pirates. It might be, um, you know, they've all become published authors where they write poems and stories or they, at the moment, they're actually um, making a film that's going to get animated and then shown at the Rio Cinema. Uh -huh. um, and they, they've done a mindfulness podcast last year and they've done political campaign posters. Uh, and it's a really rewarding experience getting to work, work with these young people. They're sort of aged, they're sort of years five through to eight. Uh, and seeing the impact that it has. And the organization has had a study, an impact study done, and has demonstrated that whilst in a normal uh, school year, academic year, these uh, young people would increase about sort of four months in their literacy level. Instead, the ones that we work with tend to um, jump up by about 16 months. Wow. And. Um, there's a noticeable difference in their confidence at school in terms of putting their hands up, wanting to take part, uh, and also just persevering. So I really like that model where it's literacy, confidence, and perseverance, and recognises that actually sometimes it's not a problem with the literacy; it's actually a problem with, you know, some of the other, some of the other things that these guys are struggling with. So that's another little area. I know that's not a lot to do with the law, <laughs> um, but it is something that I am lucky enough through. Um, I think because I am an in-house lawyer. And at a senior level, uh, I'm able to have that flexibility that I can spend that afternoon once a month um, with these guys, uh, rather than perhaps if I was working for a law firm where you are in a service industry if you're working for a law mm -hmm. firm and you're kind of expected to be there for your clients whenever they need you. Um, but working, working in this, this company has, has allowed me that, that opportunity. So how do you use the law to change the planet. I mean, how are you using that instrument mm -hmm. on a practical level? On a practical. Um, so, working for companies that have a social purpose and supporting those companies to do what they need, what they want to do. So, take Quarry for example. We are an energy from waste company and a waste management company. So, we have. Um, what we have is we have waste transfer stations along the River Thames, and then we uh, receive residual waste, which is the sort of black bag, non-recyclable waste, that's put onto a fleet of tugs and barges that we own, and we ship them down the river to a facility down in Belvedere, 
which is called an energy from waste facility. We then um, incinerate the waste, which generates electricity, which is fed back into the grid. Uh, it's enough uh, power to power about 100,000 homes a year. Okay. Uh, the ash that comes out of the bottom of that process is then uh, a third-party processor takes that ash and turns it into roading material. So it's used on things like the M25. And then um, there's, a, there's a process called air pollution control, and there's a residue that comes out of that. Um, it's basically an emissions control. There's a, there's a residue that comes out of that, and another third-party processor takes that, pumps carbon into it, and turns it into cinder blocks for building materials. Uh, and then out the stack, whilst there are some emissions, they are um, well below the um, legal permit levels. Um, and actually we have an independent um, monitoring done by the King's College of London and um, who can't actually pick up any background readings of us in the area. And we also have a recycling centre, so a materials sorting facility where we take mixed dry recyclables and we um, sort them into their constituent parts for third-party processes to then turn them into useful materials. And we have a, a couple of civic amenity sites. So that's what the company does. Now, as the general counsel, uh, me and my team, I've got a couple of lawyers in my team as well, our role is to support the business in, a, in doing just that, what I've just described. Uh, that might be through um, supporting them, you know, really pure legal stuff, so reviewing contracts, drafting contracts, um, might be in terms of some of the development projects we're looking at. So we are looking at, um, we are hoping to, we're through the planning process at the moment, we've got, um, we're hoping to get a development consent order to build another energy from waste facility next door to our current facility, which will also um, be an energy park, solar panels on the roof, battery storage, that kind of thing. And our team has been integral in supporting the planning team in um, applying for that development consent order. We um, work on a lot of sort of project management, so assisting the business to get from um, A to B in terms of their commercial goals. We sort of support them from a commercial and strategic perspective. Uh, we assist with sort of risk management, so understanding what our legal liabilities are and ensuring that you know we are operating the business um, with integrity, <laughs> frankly. So for example, um, you know, there are requirements on businesses to uh, ensure that there's no modern slavery in their supply chains. So we help um, the business undertake audits of our major suppliers in the modern slavery wow. space, for example. Um, so, so do you have various flashpoints, like or themes or subjects that you're looking for that you know are going to cause problems? So you, you, you identify, you have like a kind of Rolodex of issues that, you, that might come up and you look for them everywhere, or how does it work? Yeah, as, a, as an in-house lawyer, you're certainly a generalist and have to have a decent grasp on everything rather than a perfect grasp on one thing. And so it's about having the judgment and skill to see where an issue might be, um, asking a lot of questions, challenging the business. You certainly have to be curious. Um, and there's an element of humility about knowing, understanding what you don't know and recognizing where it's important that maybe somebody does know it. <laughs> so either 
either taking the time, you know, we're a small company, only three lawyers, so sometimes it is just, you know, doing a bit of research on our own through the resources we've got. And other times we go, you know what, this is a bigger risk or may have a larger impact on the company, whether it's reputational or financial. Uh, so maybe we need some external advice and that's when we go to our external partners who we have very good relationships with and get very specialist advice um, in the areas that we need to operate. Because uh, ultimately we're here to, um, you know, we really need to ensure that this business operates long into the future and is, is a sustainable business. And um, to do that, it, it needs to make um, profits for its shareholders. But to do that, it also needs to um, have a workforce who want to work for us <laughs> and are happy to work for us. And uh, it needs to have customers, many of whom are local authorities who um, see us as a company who you know that they would want to work for. We need to care about the impact that we have on the environment. Um, we are integrally involved in environmental management. That's what we do. We deal with society's waste. Society creates it, and we want to deal with it in the most environmentally responsible way that there is. You know, we'd we'd prefer that waste wasn't stuck into the ground in a landfill or exported to Europe, and Europe then. In, um, incinerates the waste to generate electricity. We think it makes much more sense that the UK actually manages its own waste and gets the benefits from it, which is um, electricity, base reliable baseload electricity, which means we don't need to rely on fossil fuels so much. And actually, it's really interesting. So, you know, it's really fantastic that we're moving towards a more renewable economy and a more and that our, um, the energy is moving much more towards renewables. Um, but renewables are intermittent, you know, so it's not, the sun's not always shining, wind's not always blowing. And with energy from waste, uh, we're operating 365 days a year, 24-7. And not only are we generating electricity, but we are dealing with a waste problem where otherwise that waste would be buried or be exported. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned that um, your last boss said, you know, 7pm, don't work past that, I want to... Mm -hmm. Is that possible? I mean, I know that you now have that role, mm -hmm. um, but I mean, what, what's your working day like? It, does it end? Because <laughs> um, you said 365 days a year as It's well. not as possible for me as it used to be uh, back in that? New Zealand. Uh, as the general counsel, um, I am ultimately responsible for the legal and governance of this company. Uh, so I do need to be available if there is a crisis or um, if we are working on a major project uh, that requires working till 10, 11 at night, 2 in the morning, involves having conference calls while you're in the Balkans with your mother. You know, <laughs> which does happen. Or at, you know, at a wedding and you know, a wedding in the south of France with your friends and you sit in a barn and have a conference call. Um, is this normal? <laughs> um, it's normal while there are large projects going on. So when we're just running day-to-day, -day, business as usual, you know, I'm finished by 6, 6.30, 7 o'clock, earlier if I've got something to go to, later if I've gone to yoga during the day and, or have had a long lunch, so I need to stay later. Uh, when we are working on big projects, it can be much more than that. Um, but I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. It's, re it's really exciting. It's th those big projects can be exhilarating and you're working with a 
you've got a you're working with a great team and you've got an end goal in mind and everyone is sort of firing on all cylinders so so those are fun those times uh, I'm not sure you could sustain sustain them all the time uh, but they come in waves uh, and then in the downtime you just make sure that you respect you and your team's time you know with the with my team it's if you have things you need to do and we're not busy then go and make sure you are spending time with your family or your cats or exercising or whatever it is to to ensure that you can come to work energized and and onto it final few questions you mentioned when you were young you kind of mapped out where you'd be you know the university the gap if you did it now the next 10 years where where would that be where, where would your journey go from now yeah I, where I am now, I don't have a set plan for where I want to be in 10 years time. Uh, however, I do want to continue to um, be in fact, uh, to, to have an impact where I am. I want to continue to work for a company or an organization that has, has a purpose. Um, something I'm actually moving into now, uh, which again I've had the opportunity at Quarry to, is moving into the, into things like into the sort of diversity and inclusion space and sustainability space. Uh, and starting with the diversity and inclusion, you know, walking into Quarry, Quarry is a waste company, uh, which you know the waste industry is predominantly male, and the infrastructure sector is predominantly male. You know, we've got about ninety uh, percent men at quarry it's only about 10% women um, for a long time I was the only female on the executive team at quarry um, we don't have any female board members I sit at the board as the company secretary but we don't have any female board members um, and you know one of my things here is, is is wanting to be a bit of a change agent and you know in a sector that that uh, has struggled with diversity and not just in terms of gender but has struggled with diversity in terms of sort of ethnic diversity or, or um, uh, you know, LGBTQ or, and, and perhaps, you know, some people say, well, it's the waste industry, that's just what it is, but, but I like to think that that shouldn't be, that shouldn't be an excuse. Um, and I've had a really interesting experience here at Cory. I've actually had a really, the opportunity that I was provided at a very, effectively pretty young age, you know, I became GC at 31, uh, was how? <laughs> how? Yeah, I was going to. My next question is going to be about you know how you turn things around at such a young age. This company. Yeah. So, um, I was provided the opportunity through I think two guys who who saw a reason for having somebody who was a bit different. So I can give a little bit of background into the story. <laughs> uh, so I'd been in London for a year. I'd had one, a, um, a, a one-year contract, um, and it was fine, but I didn't want to continue. Uh, so I said to them, look, happy for this contract to roll off. This is and, where? Uh, it was at a company called Aegis, which is a private security and geopolitical risk and intelligence company, which was a little bit of a um, change from the kind of renewable energy, but I thought that it might get me into human rights, which was what I'd done at my, in my master's. Um, but it just, didn't, it just wasn't really for me. So I was, um, you know, I put, put my name out in the market that I was looking for another role. 
and I've got a pretty spotted work history in terms of I've taken time off to um, do my masters, I've taken time off to travel. So at the age of 30, uh, even though I was loving my job at Meridian, I quit. And the day after I turned 30, I flew to New York and then um, traveled for six months. Why? Um, I mean, it sounds fantastic, but why? Just because I realized... By, by yourself? By myself. Uh, three months in the States, in Canada, with meeting up with various friends and family, and three months in Central America by myself, with no end game, no plan, just I'll work it out, I'll work out how long I want to stay. I actually decided to cash it, to um, spend the money I'd been saving for a house deposit, because I realized I was 29, I was single, I had no house, no kids, no mortgage, what the hell was I doing settling down in a small city in the, the corner the corner of the world that is New Zealand, as much as I love New Zealand. Uh, so I just thought I needed some, needed some adventure. So I did that. Uh, and then after the six months, I actually ended up ne nearly ended up in Washington DC working for the World Bank. Um, but then a chance message on Facebook from a friend. How did you end up working for the World Bank? That's, that's massive. I don't understand, that's, that's on the side, but I don't understand how you'd even present yourself that opportunity how, how did you... uh, so i was a, one of my best friends is uh, works for foreign affairs she's a diplomat and her and her partner who's also works for foreign affairs were posted to washington dc and so i spent quite a lot of time staying with them in dc and then another mutual friend of ours worked for the world bank and she was moving to the ifc and she said well why don't you meet my boss in case you know you can take my role and so i met him where he talked about himself most of the time so it didn't feel like the interview. I didn't even realize it was really an interview, but it didn't feel like it went that well. Um, and then I just didn't really hear from him. And then in the meantime, I had a fortuitous, uh, I was just sitting at, on my friend's sofa in DC and a, um, a friend in London put a post up on Facebook saying, does anyone want to live with me in, in my flat? You know, rooms come open. And I said, hmm, maybe I'll move to London. I've got a British passport and I've got lots of friends there. And um, so I made a very snap decision to move to London. I uh, went back to New Zealand to see my family before moving back to London and got a phone call from the guy at the World Bank offering really? me the job. How many months later? <laughs> about two months later. Uh, and then I had a think about it and had a chat to Marie, the, the friend of mine who, whose role I would have been taking and decided that actually, even though I didn't have a job in London, that London was still the better place for me to be. Uh, so I rocked up in London, um, worked for this company, Aegis, for, for a year and then decided to put my name out in the market for something else. And one day, just out of the blue, I got a phone call from a um, recruiter. And she said that she had this role. Um, she had she'd been tasked by the chairman of this company to, to think outside the box. And he was a guy who, it turns out, is actually um, quite well known in the industry and in the country. But of course, being a naive New Zealander who had only been for a year, for a year I'd never heard of him. <laughs> but now I've, now I've worked with him. And um, he, it was for this general counsel role, uh, working for two to three years on this project, which was the, the change that Corey was going through, which was selling off the non-core businesses, doing a complex restructure, refinancing the business and then putting the whole company up for sale and they wanted to do this all within two to three years. Did you have any experience of it at this point? I had never been a senior legal counsel, let alone a general counsel. 
I had helped sell a business once. I had done a minor restructure, vaguely. At Meridian, I had um, been integral in the um, change in IP, so New Zealand's biggest IPO. So Meridian had been a um, state-owned enterprise and then the government was selling 49% of its shares on the stock exchange and I'd been very involved in that project. That had been the biggest project I'd been involved in. But no, it's fair to say I'd, I'd, I'd never managed people. Um, I had, and I'd never done most of the things that they were asking for on the CV. But at the same time, it was in the environment space, in the energy space. It was close by where I worked. Uh, it was a two to three year project, which suited me pro perfectly because I didn't know how long I wanted to be in the UK. I had one look at this this position description. I said, this is the job I want. Really? I didn't know this was the job I wanted until I saw it. And then I realized I wanted it. And I was talking to the recruiter and she said that what had happened was the management team had been interviewing people and putting, putting them up to the chairman for the final say. And he just wasn't, they just weren't, for some reason, he just didn't, wasn't thinking they were the right people and so he challenged the recruiter to think outside the box and apparently she just sat in this in her off in her company saying I don't know what think outside the box means I don't know who I should be looking for and another woman said piped up and said another recruiter said oh I've been talking to this this young woman had a couple of chats to her and she seems great why don't you give her a call um, and I'd never met this recruiter before but we'd had a couple of long chats over the phone because I like to talk, um, and clearly I'd impressed her in some way, so she put me onto this other, um, on, on, onto the, um, put her colleague onto me, and so I got the call, um, thought it was fantastic, put my CV through, uh, got the interview, but my first interview, I was actually back in New Zealand visiting my family, so I had to do the interview over Skype at 11 p.m. because of the time difference um, with uh, with Johnson, and went through. All seemed, seemed to be okay. At the end of it, he, he can be quite an intimidating guy, and at the end of it, he sort of gave me some very immediate feedback and said, well, when you go and meet the next guys, um, you know, perhaps work on this and work on this. And so he kind of, you know, he wanted me to move to the next side. So he flipped it around that rather he was making the final decision, he said he was going to shortlist, and then he was going to send it down to the CEO and the CFO. Wow, and he was giving HR. you guidance. And he was giving me guidance, and then he... Um, so I got the, the second interview, uh, came back to London, and then that was meeting up with the CEO, Nick, who had been um, brought in by the new shareholders in the chair to implement the strategic plan. So CFO Richard, who had um, been with the company about nine years, and then the head of HR. Um, so sort of, you know, three, three guys sort of in their sort of 40s to 60s, that sort of age range. Um, been, you know, very experienced in their respective fields. And uh, I interviewed with them and went off to go have a glass of wine by myself afterwards to reflect on it. And about 45 minutes later, I got a call from the recruiter saying that they wanted me. Um, and it was, it was really interesting because I think that what, what that demonstrated was first of all, the chair actually putting pressure on the recruiter to find people who were different but then it wasn't a tick box exercise of diversity. So the power was still with the, with the guys to choose who they really thought was the best person for the role. And the other people I was up against was a, um, a partner at a law firm who was wanting to move in-house and a guy who had been a general counsel before. So people who are much more experienced than me. Uh, and then if, so 
it was fantastic. Uh, I went I went into it. Um, I think I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. And that first year at Corey was the hardest but the most brilliant year that I have had in my career. And it was, we achieved so much in that first year and I learned an incredible amount. And I learned it from, uh, you know, I learned it from the CFO through you know, the, spend, the, the days I would walk back and forth between our advisor's offices, just peppering him with questions. Why would we do this? Why do the banks want to do that? What does this mean? What does that mean? I would, you know, go in at the end you, of the you're day okay with my list. You were to ask those questions. You weren't, like, intimidated by the idea that you've never done this before? Or is it expected from someone in your position to ask those questions? Is that part of the role? Uh, I, asked, I asked Richard once... Um, he said that one of the most disarming things about me was the sheer number of questions that I asked and that I was okay to ask it. However, he said that that he developed a whole lot of trust in me because of that. Because he knew that I was taking the time to really understand what I was trying to do. And also through it, it through the questioning, it also challenged assumptions that other make other people make just because they've been around it can be really easy when you've been at the place for a while or when you're an expert in the industry to sometimes not think through why people are doing things and through those conversations it actually ended up generating really good thought processes and problem solving um, and then you know I learned a lot through uh, Nick who was my um, the CEO at the time who's ended up becoming you know, a real mentor to me, but was also a sponsor, you know, ensuring that I was in the room where it happened. Uh, if anyone's seen Hamilton, they'll know that reference. Um, and, you know, that, that, that I was seen as a leader in, in the organisation and was there. And I think one of the other things that it demonstrated was, you know, I asked them, why, why did you pick me? And... Again, one of the reasons they said was, well, they had brought in a, um, a, pro a program manager, a project manager called Haley, and she was a young woman from PwC, you know, really onto it, incredibly bright, um, real go-getter, was on secondment. Um, and they'd recognised that on her own, you know, she was the only woman, the only sort of the youngest in the room, and that actually having a bit of support and somebody... So, so she wasn't isolated, and somebody who was a bit like more like her would create a really good dynamic, both in terms of influencing the the senior people who had been in the in the company for a long time in terms of the change that we needed to make, but also with that really core team of the CEO, the CFO, you know, the, the two older guys, and with Haley and me, that actually that was a much more better dynamic than as they said they were like, we've already got lots of people that look and talk think like us actually having something a bit different was going to bring a new energy into the team. Um, they also made then the, the wry observation, this is very Richard, which was, well, Tess, at the end of the day, I mean, we had the likes of Slaughter and May and Linklater's and Ashurst advising us. At the end of the day, what could have gone wrong? <laughs> but, but really what they said was that I, I and Hayley and the team ended up far exceeding expectations. And I do think that the, the different energy and the diversity of thought that we all brought meant that we were able to construct a really high-performing team rather than just having people that always see the world in the same way. 
you you won general council of the year where do you go from there is that uh is that the end or is that just you where does one go from there <laughs> um, where do i go from there um i that award was a really wonderful sort of it was really wonderful because for me I was really proud of what I had achieved both from a personal perspective and what Corey had achieved and what, what our team had achieved in that space. And it was nice to kind of wrap it up with, with an award like that. Um, but I didn't really do it. I've never done any of this in order to win an award. Um, it is a bit of kind of self-drive self about what I want to achieve. So it's not about what's the next next big award can I win? Uh, and instead it's, you know, there will come a time that I, you know, move on to go and do something else and can it be, hopefully be just as fulfilling from a personal development perspective? What, you know, I, I love learning new things and challenging myself and doing things I haven't done before. And Corey gave me that and, and you know, others were sort of given me that opportunity. So I guess it's it's seeking out that new opportunity that's going to teach me something new and where I'm going to grow and develop. But in an area, again, where I can see that it, it there is that social purpose to it as well. Um, and, you know, yeah, sort of. And finally, you know, what does the world's greatest law look like to you? You know, what as an abstract concept, what would what would someone in this profession? What skills would they have that would blow you away? That would make you think, "Wow, have you even seen that?" <laughs> yeah, it really depends on sector. I think every sector has its requires its own set of characteristics, and every type of lawyer requires its own set of characteristics. For example, we were working with a, a QC, a barrister, and the way in which he could listen to us all talk and absorb vast amounts of information and then just develop a concise argument on the spot which was so articulate orally it was phenomenal to watch and then was you get in court or was it in person? no that was that was in, when we were doing preparation for a um a planning hearing so they he immediately got all the technicalities of what you were saying is that right because you it's, were saying it was very, this very complicated thing and you know, to and fro to and he could say it succinctly, is that right? Succinctly and articulately and he could distill the sort of complexity or the, the way that everyone was describing into a really coherent and cohesive argument. And then you give another example of a, um, a partner at a law firm that I worked on with um, the, the financing, the refinancing of, of the company. Um, and he... He was very senior um, and was incredibly well known in the market um, and was kind of known as the top project finance lawyer in the country. Again, coming as quite a naive New Zealander who hadn't spent a lot of time in the UK market, um, I wasn't aware of any of this. To me, he was just, you know, Bruce, a guy who I got on with really well. But I think what that really demonstrated is for him, he, he developed relationships and a really wonderful commercial way of working with his clients 
where it wasn't about the um, I know more than you or I'm brighter than you or you know don't worry your pretty little head about this about this thing but actually sitting in a room and problem solving with us and being part of the team um, and having a bit of fun on the way um, it, it really depends you know each type of uh, law I think and each, in each category of law sort of will have its own aspects of what makes you know what makes a great lawyer I don't think you could distill it down to one thing okay finally and this is yeah. the final one <laughs> uh, if you could tell young self one thing in this industry to do better or maybe uh, a core component you wish that person had your younger self what would you say to that younger version of yourself coming up through the ranks Keep being curious and keep asking questions. Even more questions. Don't be afraid to challenge hierarchy. Um, and yeah, I think those are, they aren't necessarily things I would have done differently. They are things that I think have helped me get where I am. Brilliant, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank really you enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.